RadioInfluence.com. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Friday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with Friday Frank and Beans. We just um, did a really, really hard to listen. It's hard to experience, actually, interview with um, with Dr. Joel Walscog, who you knew, Frank, when I told you we were going to have him on, right? Oh, yeah, I was I, I listened to him speak while I was putting together uh, a, a bathroom cabinet in my kitchen. Uh, that day that everybody was in D.C. and uh, I knew exactly what what song he was talking about. This that, that song that he was talking about, the uh, the vaccine song. It was called. What, what was the name of it again? I don't know the name of it, to be honest. But Anywho, it, it's great. She, yeah, no, I, it was when I listened to it. I'm not a big folk uh, music person, but when I listened to it, I said, you know, I understand why this kind of music is so has always been so popular among people who are, are are protesting and getting you're just telling a story and you're conveying a a really uh, serious situation and even a personal anecdote inside of a larger uh, event that's going on in in a new way and in, in a new vocalized way and um, the, the the thing about that song in particular that got censored which everybody will hear about it's just a brief little interchange during this um, this interview is that the person who wrote it was not feeling well enough to actually go to D.C. to perform it. They had to get somebody else to perform it for them because they're they're in such you know bad physical shape because of this this uh, this therapy. It, and um, it's just, you know, one it, of those things. It's terrible. Like, it's terrible. Uh, this was in case folks don't put the name to the face. This was the orthopedic surgeon who was vaccine injured with transverse myelitis. Um, from the shot and is now um, a co-founder of a foundation called React 19 that is helping vaccine injured people. They're running stuff. They're doing all kinds of stuff. We learn all about it in this interview. So I guess without further ado, Frank, we will bring in our guest. Let's do it. So we are honored to be joined today by Dr. Joel Waskog, who is um, somebody you probably all have seen before. He testified in front of um, Ron Johnson's committee, and he's also been. um, Did you do the event, uh, doctor, in in D.C.? You did, right? Yeah, the anti-mandate rally that was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So you are an orthopedic surgeon. You are from Wisconsin, uh, grew up around Milwaukee. You went to Marquette University and you actually got married to your college sweetheart, which is really cute. Got your degree at University of Wisconsin, um, completed an orthopedic surgery residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and then um, decided to do more training, specializing in joint replacement, which is really where you specialize. And then you were exposed to COVID in August or September of 2020. And then again, when people were symptomatic, but you didn't get COVID symptomatically, correct? Correct. So you were basically, basically, ac- yeah, everyone in my clinic, uh, like my two medical assistants, my, one of my physician assistants, my nurse, everyone started getting COVID in like September, August or September of 2020. And I really thought, how could I have not gotten it? So then I went and got an antibody test and I was antibody positive. As part of a study, I also had just done some surveillance antibody screening earlier that year in June, 
and I was negative. So I was negative in June. And then after being exposed to all these people that had COVID in September, I was antibody positive. So that that had to be the point where I got it. Yeah, makes makes the most sense. And just to give people a little background on your your practice, this is a busy, busy practice. And you are, by all counts, because I know a lot about the orthopedic world, a very wildly successful surgeon to be doing the number of surgeries that you're doing and seeing the patient volume that you're seeing. So you had a, a you know busy practice doing what you love. You were also a teacher. You helped you know mentor students and teach teach them, for lack of a better word. And then the one question everyone was so excited to know that you were coming on. The one question I got more than any other question is everybody wants to know as you get into telling us your story now why you decided to get this shot. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, that's certainly, you know, I'm not a big social media person, but I do look occasionally. And uh, one of the largest criticisms of me is, you know, basically, if I if I have this much education and training, why they get the shot? And they kind of are pretty critical of me. And that's that, you know, I think that's a good question. And, and I can kind of tell you the story. So back in September, when I was antibody positive, um, I'll be honest with you, my feeling was I wasn't going to get it because, you know, I know a lot about natural immunity and, you know, I'm still a physician. I'm an orthopedist, but I'm still a physician. Uh, But what happened was a good friend of mine got COVID in kind of November, early December, and uh, he was a very healthy person. Uh, He was an ex-college football player, and he was very, very sick and almost died. And I'll be honest with you, just because of that one experience I had, I was pretty reactionary. And I, I'll be honest with you, and I am totally honest about this. I didn't really think enough about it. I just decided to get the shot at the end of December. And at that point, that was the recommendation of the CDC, which is wait 90 days or wait three months. And that's what I did. And, and really, it was a reaction that I had, and it was a very emotional decision just because a good friend of mine got very sick with COVID, and I didn't really put enough thought into it. And that's my fault. And I blame myself for that. But again, I can't change the past. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, everybody's got their reasons, right? And, you know, one of the questions I always have for folks like you is, you know, you kind of have been a part of the medical establishment, for lack of a better word, for your entire career. So I would like for you first to tell us about your experience and what you've gone through. Transverse myelitis is not something that is mild ever, in my opinion, um, for anybody to use the word mild in front of it makes a mockery of, of all the science we have and everything we've seen. I have a friend who got transverse myelitis from neuromyelitis optica. I don't know if you know what that is, but um, it's called sure. NMO and he's paralyzed from the chest down and can't even walk. So I, I have opinions, but tell us your story and what happened to you and, and we'll we'll move from there. Well, I decided, and again, I I openly admit, I decided to get the vaccine and I got the shot, the Moderna shot, December 30th of 2020. I openly admit I should have done more thinking and more of my own research, but I did it in a very reactionary situation. Uh, About seven to eight days later, I woke up from bed and I told my wife, my feet are numb. And, uh, and when I say numb, I mean really a sensation of pins and needles or paresthesias, as we would call them. So that went on for about two or three days. And uh, it was concerning. It was both of my feet. 
And as I would walk during the day, the, the numbness would propagate up higher up my legs, up into my groin. And I was certainly concerned. I called a friend of mine who was a spine surgeon. I do have some history of neck disease or uh, cervical disc disease or arthritis of my neck. And I thought maybe it was a, uh, a herniated disc that was actually impinging or, or a bulge disc that was impinging on my spinal cord. So I called him. He ordered an MRI of my neck, which I got within a couple of days. And after that, he called me and said, you know, listen, you still got some arthritis of your neck, but there's absolutely nothing new. So we both kind of shrugged our shoulders and I said, well, I'll go on and live my life and see what happens here. And maybe this will just go away. So then several days after that, I was sitting in a clinic room with a patient. And um, again, my feet were still numb, but I tried to stand up. And when I tried to stand up, I just couldn't stand. My legs wouldn't go. That was pretty alarming. So I pushed myself up with my arms and off the examining table. And as, as I did that, I fell back. I just couldn't stand. My legs were literally like just like noodles. Uh, it was at that point where I couldn't really stand and I couldn't walk, that I knew something more serious was going on. So that started a whole big workup and um, called my wife. She came and got me. I ended up getting kind of the emergent MRIs uh, of my brain, my entire spinal cord. And that really led pretty quickly to the diagnosis of transverse myelitis. Uh, and really what transverse myelitis is, uh, think of it almost as an autoimmune attack where your immune system is attacking the, the, the spinal cord and the protective lining of the nerves called the myelin is broken down and therefore the nerves can't work correctly and they can't transmit electrical signals. Again, you have to get, in order to get that diagnosis, you have to get a big workup to make sure there's nothing else going on, like neuromyelitis optica, multiple sclerosis, infection, et cetera. So I got tons of other blood tests. I got a spinal tap. I got all of that. Everything else was negative, but my MRI of my thoracic spine showed a a lesion of my spinal cord at about T7, T8. So at the seventh or eighth thoracic uh, vertebral layer or level, I should say. And uh, the lesion is really a, what we call a demyelinated lesion. So it's an area of my spinal cord that doesn't, it's, it's robbed of the myelin protective layer. Which stops basically electrical conduction from happening. So the electrical signals can't, yeah. Um, through that area. Right. So, um, so I was fairly shocked and stunned. Uh, I definitely tell you, I, I now know the stages of grief. You know, again, grief first stage being, you know, denial. And uh, and I, he said, you know, you're, you're not going to go back to work. And he said, you have to take two or three months off of work. I said, absolutely not. I said, uh, I'll take two weeks off, but I'm very much of a workaholic and because I love my job uh, and it's not because I have to, it's because I'm a, I have a mature practice. I love going to work. I love the people I work with. I actually love patients, at least 90% of them. <laughs> but uh, so I took two weeks off and then I tried to go back to work and it really was a disaster. I mean, by the time, you know, 10 in the morning, my numbness was to my belly button. My legs were like noodles. I really just Jeez. wasn't safe. I mean, people forget, you know, I can use my hands and operate, but I'm a, I'm a carpenter basically. And in a joint replacement, you know, you need a stable 
you know, pelvic or leg platform to work with, you know, so that you can operate with your hands, but your pelvis and your legs are pretty darn important. Um, so uh, I went back for two days and, and I really realized I was just not safe to be operating on people. I, it was just not right. And therefore I agreed to take off and, you know, I started some more aggressive treatment, high dose steroids for several weeks that really did nothing. I went on uh, what's called IVIG, which is a, a kind of a blood product to try to decrease inflammation and try to really reverse the effect of, of the vaccine. But nothing really helped. I started having electrical sensations and down my spine and down my legs. When I say electrical sensations, not like, uh, not like battery shocks, but literally like putting my finger in an outlet. It was extremely disturbing whenever I would move my neck or my thoracic spine, I would get these shocks that were, uh, uh, that were alarming, let me put it that way. Uh, over the last year, fortunately, those have gotten better. But then within three or four months, I started developing kind of chronic neuropathic pain, which is just, I feel like someone's stabbing me in my butt and my thigh. Um, and then everything else has kind of persisted. I mean, uh, I still get numb. The more I'm active, my legs are numb. My legs are weak. Uh, I I used to fall a lot. Uh, I'm better now just because I know what causes me to fall or the kind of situations where I'll fall. But it's kind of just chronic now. I'm well over a year out. My legs are weak. I usually have two to four hours a day where I can walk or be uh, get around. Uh, but that's about it. And then I you know, what I do now is, you know, spend a lot of time on my computer and on the phone. Uh, and I know we'll talk about it, but I spend a lot of time, you know, helping set up this nonprofit for vaccine injured people. Um, if I sit too long, I get a lot of that neuropathic pain. So people just say, well, just sit. Well, sitting itself doesn't really, isn't a good thing either. Uh, but people don't that's understand. where I'm at. You know, people don't understand like the 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 campaign to minimize this stuff is starting to infuriate me more and more every single day. It's not as simple as just sit or just lay or just walk um, when you've got something like this going on again. Well, even if it was that simple, Tracy, the whole whole thing is just, just, (laughs) you know, listen, I know you want to live your life, but just lay down for a few hours. Uh, You know, that's even if it did help. What the hell is laying down? That's not a life. No. And it's terrible. And so one of the things that shocked you, I'm going to speak for you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you tried to at least alert the vaccine company, the CDC, you know, anybody that would listen. Look, this is happening. I know this has been something that's happened before in some trials and they, they actually stopped the, I believe it was the AstraZeneca vaccine before, because of this, um, you guys should study me or know about this so that you can potentially prevent it from happening in the future. And you got absolute crickets from everyone. Yeah. Let me say a little bit about that. So, uh, you know, coming from the healthcare field, I'm really embarrassed by our, our, our healthcare community. I'm embarrassed by our governmental agencies that are really supposed to be set up to protect us as citizens. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct that the AstraZeneca trial in the UK was uh, delayed twice for three reported cases of transverse myelitis. So originally when this happened to me, I didn't even, um, you know, I didn't immediately think about the vaccine, but it took me about a week to say, oh yeah, I just got the vaccine. And oh yeah, I had read about the AstraZeneca trial. Uh, being stopped by three cases of transverse myelitis. So I submitted it to theirs. Uh, I honestly, I expected a phone call in like a day 
because it was kind of an it is kind of an alarming diagnosis. But yep. you know, days passed, weeks passed. It took about I think three weeks before I contacted them and I demanded that they contact me. And uh, a day or two later, someone did. Uh, they really had little to offer. They said they could do this consultation on my case to help me decide whether or not I should get the second vaccine. <laughs> which, well, is, <laughs> which is insulting. Yes. Which is insulting. Now, I realized after talking to them really what they wanted to do, which was they wanted my information to try to figure out or try to really find out reasons they could um, say that it wasn't from the vaccine. So I could kind of smell out what they were trying to do, but they, they kind of put it in this uh, argument that they were trying to help decide. And I was like, well, listen, there's no way in hell I'm getting a second vaccine. So uh, I didn't do their little COVID vaccination consultation. Uh, I tried to get a hold of Moderna numerous times. They never responded. I filled out every piece of paperwork that anyone ever asked me to. And I've never had any contact with the CDC Again, I've never had any contact with Moderna, despite numerous attempts and letters and emails, et cetera. So now as a as a medical professor, again, as somebody who has been in, in this in this field that's supposed to help people. And, you know, you know what you do as a surgeon and where your heart is and a doctor. Um, were you were you now looking at everything through a different set of glasses than you had ever in the past? Like. What was that process like to realize that now these institutions, you know, are just in cover up mode and don't really care about people at all? Um, it's, it was eye opening and truly. And this is what I said in my presentation at the D.C. event with Ron Johnson in December or was it November? I'm sorry, November. Uh, if you get a vaccine, I'm sorry, if you have a shot adverse event, you will be abandoned. And that is the one word that I can describe. When I say abandoned also, I don't mean you'll be forgotten. All of these organizations will take it to the next level. They will do everything they can to actively censor you. Yep. Yeah. I want to be clear. It's not just just forgotten. It's you will be actively censored. Again, even my own, you know, I've talked to now thousands of people that have had adverse events after their vaccine. And anecdotally, I would tell you about 90% of them, their providers, their healthcare providers either say it's not their, their symptoms are not related to the vaccine, or they just say they won't get involved. I'll be honest with my neurologist who I actually know. And I like he, and I want to quote him as, as, as close as to uh, reality as possible. He said, quote, I don't want to get involved end quote. Which is and when I talk about that, I mean, with regards to causation. So, OK, that's fine. I, I keep on. We're going to get into what you're doing now with React 19 because it's so needed. There are I, I've been saying this for like months and months and months now that you could technically you probably could throw a rock and hit a vaccine injured person in this country. There are so many people and. I keep on saying it's all going to come to a head at some point very soon when the insurance companies are covering conditions like yours in tens of thousands of people and there's no one to point the finger at. Do you do you think that that's a logical hypothesis? Well, I, I think in the end, the proof will be in the numbers. You can't suppress these people forever. Uh, you know, and again, there's well over one million 
adverse events reported in bears. Sure, I understand that some of those 1 million are minor side effects, right? But anybody, I think, with logic that understands how people report to bears and how little is reported to bears, that that 1.1 million number of adverse events in bears right now is grossly underreported. I mean, if you look at, uh, it's just crazy because there's there's tons of people out there. And yes, I think as more and more people uh, just, you can't ignore reality. And I think the other thing, the other two things that may change this year is number one, the children. And I hate to say this, but I think it's going to be very difficult for uh, media, mainstream media in particular, to deny the reality of vaccine injured or killed uh, children. And I think, and I hope with the change in midterm elections, with Republicans getting control of the House and the Senate and therefore controlling the committees, we'll be able to truly investigate a lot of the things that have gone on that are quite shady. Were you Republican or Democrat in your own mind before all of this? Personally, I'm, I'm a I'm a, I would say I'm a conservative, but, okay. um, you know, our React 19 organization uh, is is apolitical. Again, my co-chair uh, of that organization is Brianne Dressen from Utah, and she's a lifelong Democrat. And that's the truth. But all of us in the organization tend to use Republicans because they're more uh, what I would say, more sympathetic and, and not dramatically sympathetic, because, again, some of them have taken pharma money. If you look at some oh, of their. Yeah donor lists over the last several years. But um, but we've realized that the Republicans tend to be more sympathetic, although there's truly only one hero for us Johnson. that really gives us a voice, and that's Senator Ron Johnson from the state of Wisconsin. So how did you come about getting together with the team? And, and just, did you did you start this um, organization on your own or how did this happen for you? So it's a little bit of an evolution. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, talking, going back to my original experience, uh, you know, I, I went through some processes of grief where I was in denial. And then I got really angry last March or April. And then in the summer, uh, you know, I'm fine. And there's nothing more than I want to do right now than disappear into a private, uh, early retired life. I'm not really a public person. However, kind of in the summer, when I started to talk and get emails and talk to other vaccine injured people, people, I started to say, okay, well, I kind of want to get involved. I talked to Ron Johnson's uh, office. He was at least someone that was allowing vaccine injured people to speak. He held an event here in the Wisconsin area last June. And then by the fall, uh, I started speaking to other people that were back, more people that were vaccine injured. And then he held that event in in, um, let's see, in D.C. in November. So what he did in in June was hold an event just where five or six vaccine injured people could speak. They did. It was really not well received because they just attacked Ron Johnson and it was just looked at, OK, this wasn't science. This was just five people with sad stories. Yeah. Well, the idea in the November event was to take it to the next level, bring you know people that were had adverse events, but also bring scientists to explain the science of what we we're experiencing. And maybe that the vaccines weren't as safe or effective as they were being marketed. The November 2nd event is really where we all kind of cohesed together. And when I left D.C. after the November 2nd event, I became passionate. And this is really my calling. I, 
I have never been this passionate in my life, even about healthcare, um, about trying to help these vaccine injured people. These people are abandoned. They're abandoned physically. They, have, they can't find providers that will help them. They're told they're crazy. They're told that they have anxiety disorders. They're abandoned financially. Remember, once you have an adverse event, a lot of people don't have disability policies like I do, and they are devastated. Single parents can't work. It's horrible. There's just no financial recourse for them. And then socially or psychosocially, they're abandoned. You know, they're told they're crazy on social media. They say they try to tell their story in social media. Everything's taken down. So that's why we developed this organization to support them. And what and it blossomed. It's crazy. We have over 13,000 people. We've raised uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Starting next week, we're starting to give out money and grants to them. Um, we are very busy with events that are coming up to try to get our message out and help these people. So what's the website for folks to go to to take a look? And then I want to get into some more depth about some of the stories you've encountered and things that have happened to folks. So our website is www.react19.org. It's R-E-A-C-T-19, no space, dot org. And you guys produced a video that is, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, basically a, a song that was written by folks in the organization who have had experiences. It's a beautiful, beautiful video. I put it only on Telegram, doctor, and I'm, um, we're at almost 45,000 views on it since yesterday when I put it out there and the comments underneath it are just heartwarming. I mean, people are just, they're up there. They're angry about this. And I think that there's a lot more support for you guys out there than you realize. And I think you're seeing that in the form of contributions now, but what are some of the stories of some of these folks that have come to your organization that, you know, have just kind of shook you because it's terrible? Well, let me talk a little bit. So Brianne Dressen, who is really, truly the founder of the organization, I, you know, she calls me the co-founder. I do a lot of work with her, but I kind of say she's truly the founder. This was her brainchild uh, even before the November 2nd event. But Brianne Dressen, you know, did her part in late 2020 and, and signed up for the uh, AstraZeneca trial, even before it was FDA approved. So she had one uh, shot and got a very bad adverse event and didn't get the second shot. So what did they do with her data? They kicked it. They removed it. it. Yep. They just kicked it. So uh, her, her shot and her adverse event does not even come up in their study. So there are so many stories like that. It's just crazy. So again, because she didn't get the second shot, they just completely removed her as a patient and therefore she doesn't show up for the study. That kind of crazy behavior, anti-scientific behavior is, is, is commonplace from what I've learned. And she lost a, she lost a friend, right? To suicide over this. Yeah. There's actually several people that have committed suicide. She actually had a whole group that she was a Facebook group that was uh, very much suicidal uh, and Facebook uh, took the group down and she lost a lot of people, found out people uh, had then committed suicide. And I blame Facebook and some, and many people for that. Um, uh, Maddie DeGary, who is on that video too. Uh, Maddie DeGary is a 12 year old. She was part of the Pfizer trial for kids back in 2020. She's in a wheelchair. She's a feeding tube. It's, Brianne right now is in Ohio spending time with Maddie. Uh, the, the worst is, thing is that that they they actually like 
people and, and, you know, science, even scientists and doctors will call folks like you anti-vaxxers as some sort of a pejorative when you actually got the vaccine. So how can you be an anti-vaxxer when you went out and did your part in quotes um, (laughs) to get the shot, which has harmed you? And, you know, the thing about it is, I think, you know, we saw the what do you make of the the Pfizer earnings report um, adjustments that they've made for next quarter in their in their disclosures? I think it's because we've got the lawsuit from um, Aaron Siri and and the docs that he's representing, the organizations he's representing. That's going to release all the safety data from Pfizer. Are you guys going to showcase that? I've seen you've done some work on that. Yeah, first of all, you know, I, I watched your uh, podcast with Aaron and I know Aaron. He actually sat next to me at the November 2nd event and uh, he's a really good person because, I mean, he was crying with the rest of us when we heard a lot of these other stories. So, um, yeah, no, the truth will come out. And unfortunately, uh, the root of much evil in the world is money. And uh, if you follow the money trail, I think in the end, uh, the truth will come out. Uh, but yeah, no, the Pfizer data, as we're trying to get in Aaron's group, uh, Sirius group is trying to get all that uh, freedom of information uh, in, uh, released. Uh, you know, the, if you look at the Pfizer internal data, the initial uh, data dump, it was alarming. There was in the initial, what, 10 weeks of the fight. Uh, Pfizer rollout, uh, there was over 40,000 uh, adverse events reported in their data yep. in 2000 deaths. Yes. And, you know, and and miscarriage and spontaneous abortion that they try to whitewash as comparable to the rest of society. And then now we're seeing the normalization of terrible health conditions like blood clots, cerebral thrombosis, um, you know, a heart attack, myocarditis and pericarditis, like they're normal, mild occurrences that happen when it gets cold outside and you're trying to exercise. It's ridiculous. Frank, do you have any questions? No, it, it's I, I'm right on board with you on all this stuff. Just, uh, you, you know, you guys, I don't know if you're aware of any of the military whistleblower things that are kind of coming out. Teresa Long's work. Yes. And we, you yeah. know, we reported what what we did at Uncovered DC, uh, doctor, is we took the data from that military from the release that that um, Thomas runs. Tracy, this is the this is the the reports that that talk about cancer rates and all that stuff. Yeah. Neuro neurodegenerative diseases, all kinds of Mm. stuff in the military data that then they said, oh, there's an issue, but only revise the data in the codes that were at issue and not the rest of the database. Like they basically tried to whitewash it and say we had a reporting issue or some kind of problem and took the whole thing offline. But we cross-referenced it against VAERS to find the percentages and see if there was a correlation between the VAERS data and the military data. And I know it's not an equal and necessarily an equal comparison, but the VAERS data backs this up a hundred thousand percent. So there's more coming from there. Anything that you can share with us? Well, yeah, there's a lot more to that story. Uh, so, and I, I think it's going to come out at some point, but again, that's Teresa Long and two other military physicians who, who said that at one point there were over 200 uh, uh, pilots from the military that were grounded at one time. And uh, what their data shows is that in the military last year, there was an increased mortality or death rate. There was an increased miscarriage rate. There was increased significant risks of neurological complications, but alarmingly, there was also a dramatic increased risk of cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, and 
and again with gene therapy, and that's what this mRNA vaccine is. Okay, with gene therapy, the cancer risk is alarming, and I'm not saying I am positive that the vaccine causes cancer, but just the military data raises the question. And part of science is okay. Well, let's figure it out. But to figure it out, you got to they got to share the data in a transparent fashion. Remember, who owns all of the data for the vaccines? It's not the government. The pharmaceutical companies own the data. And we're basically suing them in a Freedom of Information Act release to try to see the data. Yeah, which now they've been ordered to release in in rapid fashion, basically starting at March 1, the day of the State of the Union address, there will be a release of the first 10,000 pages. And then I believe in June, there's an uh, April, there's another 10,000 and then they ramp it up from there. Um, And I read through all of the pages that have been released so far and just the sheer incompetence of the 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 people that ran this trial. And it's Alliance Eco Health or something. I forget the name of the group. That that most of the study data is coming from. But, you know, they were giving third shots in this. Did you know that? Did you realize that they were giving third shots to these trial participants? I didn't. I didn't. I mean, again, there's there hasn't been much science that they follow. I mean, again, a usual trial for a new vaccine takes 10 years. Yeah. Uh, You know, the FDA approved the first uh, Pfizer vaccine in, I think, 108 days. So the usual scientific process for vaccine approval has not been followed. And as you know, uh, there's no regulatory agency that is really independent in, in being critical of the vaccines. I think even Aaron Siri talked about, you know, the in, in, in airplane accidents, for example, you know, you have the FAA, you have the Department of Transportation, but you have an independent regulatory body called the NTSB. Well, in here in the United States, we have all of them working together to promote the vaccines. And I say all of them, pharma, CDC, NIH, and the FDA are all working, not independently, but dependently to promote the vaccines. It's a crazy system and people really need to wake up. This is what I always say, the silent majority of reasonable people need to stand up and say something. And I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I look at the trucker protests in Canada. That makes me smile. People finally willing to wake up and actually stand up, take risks and say their opinion. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've seen what's going on up there right now, which is which is absolutely terrible. But it's, I think it's doing more harm to their cause. They meaning the bad guys than than good, because it's utterly transparent what they're trying to accomplish. Um so if someone were to donate to React 19, what do those funds go to and how are they dispersed? And, you know, if someone's vaccine injured, how do you verify what they're going through to know that the you know what I'm saying? There's got to be some level of. of sure. Yeah. So. Sure. So I can tell you a little bit more yeah, about the React 19 uh, organization and the, what we call this the React uh, uh, React Cares uh, patient fund. So two ways to donate to us right now. One is to go on the website, react.org, and go under the donate button, and there's several ways to donate there. Uh, Also, if anyone listening wants to just donate a text to give, you can text the word react, R-E-A-C-T, to 50155. Again, react to 50155. Anything that comes on that text, uh, text to give number, we promise will directly go to vaccine injured people. 
So what we're doing, and we've been working very hard in the last month, is to develop a system by which we they apply, they apply online, uh, they provide us with some financial information, some medical information. Again, we don't want to try to get too much information, but we really are going to start next week with probably next week with five people as a pilot and see if it works because we have money. Uh, and then we have to obviously verify some of their information uh, and then be able to give them direct money for uncovered medical expenses. And and uh, there's, as you mentioned, so much other so many other things like childcare and, you know, you know, people missing work without disability, people unable to pay their mortgages. I mean, this is happening. I know, you know, of people who were in this situation, they basically lost everything. Um, are there going to be like um, mental health services that you guys are going to provide? Like how far are you guys going to go with this? With the, the financial grant? No, no. In general with, with the organization. Okay. So, so our organization, there's really, our mission is we are injured, vaccine injured people here to serve the vaccine injured. We're doing that really through three different realms. The first is financial. The financial aspect, we have the grant program up and running, we hope within a few weeks. The pilot, I hope, should run next week. So that's the financial aspect. The physical aspect of our organization is we're trying to develop physician referral networks basically physicians that will help take care of these people who are unfortunately what I would call as vaccine injured friendly. How do we do that? Well, it's hard. And really what we're doing right now is we're working through a telehealth company. We have a big meeting on Monday. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. On Tuesday of next week. And I think through telehealth, we can help a lot of people. At least we're going to start with a primary care type system for people that don't have a physician or can't find a vaccine injured friendly physician. If, if the vaccine, if the primary care doctor referral system works well, then we're going to go into mental health next. Uh, there's a lot of mental health issues in this. And again, a part of it, I think, is just because these people are so uh, ostracized. Uh, they're so abandoned. They're actively censored. So I think there's a lot of mental health issues. And mental health would be the second run we get into through telehealth after the primary care trial. Uh, specialty care is something down the road. Uh, if we can't really do specialty care, then we may tap into the REACT Cares Fund financially then just to, to support them to see a specialist uh, more locally. The other part of the, the physical support that we're trying to pr uh, provide is I'm sick of waiting for our healthcare community and our FDA and our other institutions to develop uh, you know, evaluation and treatment strategies for their, these adverse events. So we're doing it ourselves. So we're trying to develop a research researcher network across the country, actually across the world, uh, of researchers that will help us evaluate, uh, develop uh, kind of evaluation treatment programs for the vaccine injuries. And you're you're also the, the, doing your own studies. Yeah, we're doing our own studies. Now we have enough people. We have thirteen thousand people in the organization, and it continues to grow. Uh, and we want to work with other organizations. We're not. We're not trying to be a private uh, organization and keep our walls up. We're trying to work with others. So as we have more people, um, we're going to continue to study ourselves and try to do our own research. The last component of the organization is what I would call the psychosocial component. And, you know, right now, you know, Facebook and all these other social media platforms completely just censor us. If, if you watch that silence video, 
The silence video is actually a, a, a vaccine-injured uh, person singing a song written by a vaccine-injured person, and it's talking about censorship and how we're kind of just forgotten and censored. Well, that video was taken down within six hours after it went up. I mean, it's 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 it makes me furious that a that, that a true video shown of true vaccine injured people uh, called silence gets censored. It's is it, is this um doctor is this the uh, is this the the video? I'm sorry the the song that was performed on at the Capitol that day. Correct. I, I taken saw down this. off the internet within six hours. Wow. And it was labeled as misinformation. I appealed uh, and I appealed and said, this is not misinformation. These are real people. I will send you all their medical records because they're all public. And I, within two hours, I just got a blanket denial. Yeah, there's there's it's it's murder. I mean, I'm not afraid to say it. I've said it before. It's 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 cry, a crime against humanity, the likes of which we have never seen before that pales, you know, makes makes other horrible things that have happened pale in comparison. And it doesn't seem like it's slowing down. Like I was going to talk to you there. They're taught. There was a preprint study released about this, um, you know, another Omicron variant that they want to actually designate its own Greek letter because it's so different from the B1 variant. It's it's just completely different. It's vaccine evasive, except if you have another booster. And it's like they just won't let it go. When is this? You know, booster uptake has been relatively putrid in this country. What do you think they're going to do next? And, you know, I don't know. You're not an epidemiologist, but the, the, the new Omicron is more pathogenic than the first one is. And that's kind of what Geert Vandenbosch has been telling us was going to happen. What do you foresee for the future? Do you have any thoughts about any of that? Well, I think it doesn't take a medical degree, you know, for people to start saying, listen, when does this end? Uh, you know, again, the vaccine is not effective. Remember, the vaccine was originally created to prevent infection and to prevent transmission. It didn't work. They changed the narrative okay, to say, okay, well, now it's, it's to decrease hospitalization and death. Well, that's actually debatable. Yes, I think it probably has decreased hospitalization. Decreasing death rate is, is debatable. But no matter what, how the vaccine was originally defined, it is not effective. And I would argue it's not safe. I look at the fact that the strategy here was everybody put all of their eggs in one basket, and that's the vaccine. And again, in retrospect, we needed a more comprehensive approach that looked at prevention, vitamin D, looked at early treatment, hydroxychloroquine. Um, the, wor- the, uh, the worst part is that was all available when they were developing the vaccine. <laughs> like, that's the worst part of this. It, that was all. But they wanted it to work. They ignored natural immunity. Yep. Um, no doubt. I think vaccines probably have some role in COVID moving forward, especially the elderly uh, people with uh, multiple comorbidities. And if you look, uh, people with obesity uh, certainly have high risks of morbidity and mortality with COVID. Um, but again, they just put all their eggs in the vaccine basket. And even though you got you have obvious information that the I think that the vaccines are not safe, they're not effective. They just put so much of their name on the vaccines that they can't just wake up and just admit kind of what's going on. So let me ju- anybody that questions them, they just say their misinformation. Again, I always use this and I tell people counter information is not information is not misinformation. 
counter information. It's part of science. It's part of trying to get to the real truth. And again, to question what we're told is American. And right now, if, if you say anything that doesn't fit the 100% vaccine narrative, you're just a nut job. So, you know, people can say what they want, that I got the vaccine and they criticize me for getting the vaccine. I get it. I can't change the past. But this isn't about me. And, and what I do is, is, is not about me. My whole struggle, what I do every day now is work for these vaccine injured people. Uh, I think people just got to wake up and be more empathetic. And we have just gotten so far away from being good human beings. That's why in our organization, we, we say we're not red, we're not blue, we're purple, we're team humanity. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, I have to ask you a question, though, because you you said something that I see a lot of people say and I personally disagree with. But that doesn't mean that I, I don't respect your opinion. So you said, I think we're going to see a place for vaccines in covid for people who are elderly, immunocompromised or they are um, obese or whatever. And I would argue that the data actually screams against vaccinating the immunocompromised and against vaccinating for COVID when there's early treatment that has been absolutely proven to work, even in high risk groups. So even with everything that, you know, and you've gone through, it seems you still feel like there's a place for the vaccine somewhere. Can you explain that so people better understand? Okay, well, I, I just think we have to have a much more comprehensive approach, and I think vaccines could be part of that, but it's a pretty small part. But that's why I think we, first of all, we never had a conversation about natural immunity. Natural immunity is huge. Mm-hmm. And why are we vaccinating people that uh, two weeks before, you know, had, um, you know, had COVID? It, it makes no scientific sense. So, again, my argument is we just need a much more comprehensive approach prevention, early treatment, recognize natural immunity, uh, treat adverse events. Uh, and, and again, I, I am open to the discussion that vaccines could be part of a comprehensive approach. It's just the reality is, is our only approach has been vaccines. Yeah. Everything else is considered anti-science. Fauci is not science. I won't stop with, with, with what we're doing until Fauci, Woodcock, Peter Marks and all those other people are in prison orange. I'll be honest with you. What they've done is criminal. Uh, The conversations I've had, the lack of response I've had with Peter Marks, who's the head of biologics in the FDA, uh, I I view what he's done as criminal. Yeah, I mean, complicit. They're complicit in all of this. We just published a piece from uh, Dr. Andrew Huff. Uh, Well, we wrote it, but we interviewed him for it from EcoHealth Alliance about the initial gain of function research and Peter Daszak and all the things that were going on back then and how the U.S. government is literally complicit in all of this, if not the cause of it. And, you know, there there needs to Frank screams about it all the time that there needs to be accountability. And, you know, if there isn't accountability, how do we even begin to have any justice there are Nothing. people maimed and yeah. dying. Go ahead, Frank. Oh, no, you, you, you got it. It's, it's if if we don't finish the job, then what are you doing? This is uh, obviously we're, we're talking about something that is it's not a mistake. It's definitely not just an error that would have been acknowledged and apologized for and corrected two years ago at this point. So um, we're, we're, this is this is going to very, very stark criminal levels. Yeah. Um, doctor, we are sorry that this has happened, but at the same time, I think we've gained a fighter, a passionate fighter for, for folks out there who are feeling very alone and, um, everyone out there again, it's react19.org. 
you can go there and help out this organization. Um, I, I mentioned before the show, I'd like to speak to you offline about something that I'm working on that I think fits nicely in with what you're doing over there and could be a good collaborative effort. And um, God bless you. And I know that there's no real good answer for if you'll ever have a normal, in quotes, life again, given your injury. But I, I will pray that that happens for you somehow. Well, thank you. I'll be honest with you. I'm happier than ever. So that's the, the island of my thing is I am 100% passionate. I'm very blessed to be able to do what I do. Uh, and, and again, I'll tell you, you know, this isn't about me. You uh, know, all I'm trying to be is a voice for these other vaccine injured people. Um, well, that's what I do every day. And uh, I'm totally blessed. God, God, God bless. That's amazing. I mean, look, sometimes there there's lemonade made and it seems like you found a purpose that you probably never would have found if you hadn't experienced this. So rainbow, I guess, at the end of the uh, rainstorm. Yeah, no, totally. Awesome. Thank you so much totally. for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. The Benjamin Franklin quote, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, is as true today as it was in 1736 when he first said it, especially if you're an athlete. On this week's episode of Crush Performance, we'll look at how getting regular checkups can help you not just avoid injuries, but play and perform at your very best. We'll also look at the latest doping scandal that is casting a shadow over the Beijing Olympics and what it means for sport. And we'll have a look at the Super Bowl and Odell Beckham's non-contact knee injury and how it's spurring on a heated conversation as to whether we should be using turf or real grass in sport. Crush Performance with Jeff Grishel can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.